1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I will be in dialogue with Peter Williamson regarding his book, Duce, The Contradictions of Power, The Political Leadership of Benito Mussolini, published in London by Hearst & Company 2023. The book, is also published in North America by Oxford University Press. Dr. Peter Williamson is an independent researcher. Peter, it's my blessing to be in dialogue with you today.
1: No, my my pleasure, Ari. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Kindly, Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you'd become as an adult?
1: Right. I I was born uh, in Edinburgh, went to to school there, and then uh, went to Edinburgh University where I ended up studying politics. Um, And kind of, although it wasn't my original intention, grew in love with the subject that seemed to click with me, politics, political science. Uh, and then i went on to do a phd at the university of of aberdeen um and and that was really quite a formative um academic event because for the first time i was really having to develop ideas of my own rather than repeat ideas of others for undergraduate exams and deal with a lot of material so the three three and a half years I spent and it was was for me a major major development. It was quite an interesting uh, PhD because it covered three different elements. One was Catholic and nationalist, economic and social theory. Then it had a section part on Mussolini's Italy um and salazar's portugal and then it ended up with a third part on contemporary political economy of of britain and that was all under the heading of corporatism which when i was doing that work um in the 1970s and 80s 1980s was was a big idea in political political science and um then I went into teaching politics but graduated towards um, public policy, public management um in, in the mid-1980s and actually ended up uh, with a job at the medical school leading on a health policy and management. And then in a sort of one of these unplanned ways, I ended up um, being recruited into the National Health Service as a planning as a, as a strategy director, uh, which I spent many years in, um, and also worked uh, in in the government here on on health policy. And then after what seemed like too many years, I, I retired, and um, immediately I retired one day, and the next day I started writing this book. <laughs> Without necessarily having a clear um, a clear idea of how it was going to develop certainly when it started, so that's that that's me. That's a sort of background. Um, the thing I, I would add though is that having taught management uh, and then being a sort of manager director it gave me a certain insight into how people manage things and that was applicable to Mussolini. Um, so I think that kind of additional background, not just a pure history background, if you like, was helpful in, in developing the ideas and themes of the book. What inspired
0: you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: That's a, that's a good question. Um, I t- although I given up academic work for quite a number of years. I'd always retained an interest in Mussolini. I'm not entirely sure why I'd studied him. Biographies would come out, studies of fascism would come out, and I'd always buy them and and read them. Um, And I suppose, although there was a lot of depth to many of these studies of Mussolini, at the end of the day, I kind of thought, well, there's something missing. Uh, in that, particularly when put them all together, there was um, quite different presentations of Mussolini. There was what was pretty popular in Anglo-US history up until the mid-90s, this idea that he was a, a, a political manipulator, almost a kind of charlatan, um, who didn't necessarily have much substance uh, to him. But at the same time, there were arguments that actually he was a much more positive leader, much more effective in the sense that he was a benevolent dictator. Yes, he got rid of democracy in Italy, or he and the fascists got rid of democracy in Italy. But he then achieved many positive benefits for Italy. So that seemed to stand in contrast and then there were arguments that he was he was pretty pragmatic, contingent. He dealt with issues as they arose. But then there were arguments that he was a really strong ideologue who had a, a sort of fascist vision, particularly based around international expansion. He had he had that vision to, to take forward, and that was in a sense what was driving him and the fascists. And then there were arguments writer Richard Bosworth would argue that there was a lot of continuity between what Mussolini did and what had come before under the, the so-called liberal, liberal, after it was unified in, in 1861. Now, to some extent, these couldn't all be right, all these different uh, I suppose that all But at the end of the day, I began to get to the point where I was thinking, to some extent, they were all right, but only when you kind of put them together and sorted out some of the rough edges, the contradictions, did you get that overall picture of of what Mussolini as a political leader represented.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell?
1: I think that... The primary story is about how Mussolini, on the one hand, was very effective. He was very effective at getting hold of power and holding on to it. But then, having done that, partly through his own weaknesses, if you like, but also the circumstances he found himself in, he was unable to use that power to achieve the aims he wished and actually, um, a lot of what he set out to do, not completely by any means, but to a significant degree, he failed to, to achieve. And that was down to a, his obsession with protecting his own position, which probably at the end of the day took priority in a lot of his decision making. And we may come on to aspects of, of that in our discussion. But also, I think he didn't really understand what leadership was about. He'd had no experience. He'd effectively been a journalist, a bit of a, a political, um, and a big organization. He'd never graduated the ranks of government to the to the uh, and view view. Watchment was about. Partly that was because through upon nineteenth century philosophy, Nietzsche, George Sorrell, Vilfredo Pareto, a host, who in his mind suggested that effective leadership was about power, the will to power was about psychology, was about force where necessary, but wasn't really ever about going with people, engaging people, but somehow himself as a sort of super leader, an omnicompetent leader, could direct things from above. And up to a point, he could, but there were major limitations to that.
0: What were the influences that shaped Benito Mussolini's political thinking? What was his political philosophy?
1: Mussolini was influenced by a wide range of of sources. In the early part of the 20th century, after a short time as a school teacher, he ended up in Switzerland. And at that time, he became close to the Italian section of the Socialist Party uh, in Switzerland and started doing some uh, writing, organising for them. And there were a range of, of influences on it. The first one, I think, it was bilfredo Pareto, um, who he came across in a short course he studied at Lausanne University, who, what Mussolini took out of it was that there was never any chance of a real democracy. Elites would always take control. The elites might change, but the elites would always be in charge. As may have already mentioned, Nietzsche again was a significant influence upon his thinking, um, particularly this idea of will to power, that somehow you could be a super leader, you could rise to the top. Through your own force, your own willpower, um, and that again, repeating what I've already said, was was part of it. It was about power. He was also influenced um, slightly later on by the uh, syndicalists, particularly Georges Sorel, who advocated the use of violence in politics, and he was attracted to violence as as a means of achieving political power, driving political political power. So he picked up a lot of that 19th century and enlightenment thinking, um, which was a slightly hard-carrying member of the Socialist Party at the time. Um, And yet, actually, if you go through his writings at that time in depth, there's not much of a socialist vision to change the revolution, and he was willing to be engaged with socialism to take that forward. But you never quite got the impression that he had a vision of a socialist society at the end of of what he would see as a a revolution. Um, And he he was an elitist. He saw society... Again, in contrast to sort of socialist thinking as hierarchically organised, that's how it should be, that's how it should function. There was always a hierarchy. Um, And in that sense, that's what was driving an idea of elite control. Therefore, no need for democracy. Democracy was... um, almost against the nature of, of society, this idea of equality, of everybody having one vote. And towards the end of the 1900s, that decade, he became a sort of nationalist, much more nationalist inclined. It, it was a bit of a mixed picture, a bit of a mixed journey of, of, of discovery almost, His initial nationalism was very much based on a cultural idea that Italy had been a great country, had somehow lost out under democracy and the current governing elite, but could recapture that. But that, as I say, started off not really as an imperialistic view, but much more a heritage cultural view of, of Italy and therefore of Italian nationalism.
0: What were the similarities and differences between Adolf Hitler's consolidation of power in Germany and Benito Mussolini's consolidation of power in Italy?
1: I think that one of the principal differences was that Hitler and the Nazis achieved their dictatorship very quickly within Germany and were more violent in doing it than the fascists ever were in Italy. Fascism had its violent side, there's no escaping that, but it was never anything like one found in Hitler's Germany. The second thing which I think is important, Mussolini was always cautious. He'd come to power in some ways backed by fascist violence squads, but he'd also, at the end of the day, when he became prime minister, had a sort of informal agreement with Italy's political, economic, social elites. And he depended on that, and he certainly saw his dependence on that throughout his time and power, to secure his position. And that meant that he was always somewhat cautious that if he took the wrong direction, the wrong decision, the elites would somehow abandon them, become more difficult, become a, become a source of, of opposition, whereas Hitler was just completely ruthless. Um, I would say, on balance, Mussolini was, 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 was cautious because he didn't feel he, he had that concrete, solid basis of power automatically from those with influence and power in, in Italy
0: how if at all was benito mussolini's personal and interpersonal relationship with adolf hitler different from other allies of hitler such as vidkun quisling ion antonescu anti pavellitch or others
1: the 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 relationship which which developed in the 30s hitler if he had heroes, possibly in the the nineteen twenties, saw Mussolini as some sort of political hero and tried on a number of occasions to communicate with Mussolini, who at that point disregarded him. But into the early nineteen thirties, Mussolini began to realise either here was a kindred spirit, and certainly when Hitler took power, here was a potential ally. Here is. St- someone in charge of a country who could support work with him and, indeed, Italy to achieve international expansion. Mussolini in the 1920s had dabbled in ideas of of international expansion, particularly, I think, two areas were Yugoslavia and, latterly, uh, Ethiopia, but realised that Italy didn't necessarily have the... Military wherewithal to achieve it, so the alliance with Hitler was was attractive. However, the alliance with Hitler also had dangers attached to it. Firstly, that Hitler would become, as he indeed indeed did, become the principal leader of fascism uh, in in Europe. Um, and therefore slightly sidelined Mussolini, who wanted to see himself as a great international as well as national leader. He was also uncertain about Hitler's intention, particularly when Hitler moved into Austria, because Austria was now up against the Italian border, he was always concerned that that northeastern area the Alta Adige was vulnerable to German military um German military threat and finally i don't think he in one way ever developed a personal relationship I there was always a suspicion in the, the relationship between him and and hitler so i think that that was a very important relationship, certainly in the 1930s for Mussolini, but one that caused him great difficulty. Because, as I say, at the end of the day, Hitler clearly was in charge of a much more powerful country and was in, therefore always a potential threat. But also, I think, on a personal level, the, the relationship was in, in many ways contrived and superficial. They were never that, that close. Although I should add that, that that reflects Mussolini. He was never good politically with anybody in developing kind of close relationships that, that added more than the sum of the parts, if you like.
0: What new perspectives are presented in your book regarding Margarita Sarfati?
1: Margarita Sarfati was um, a socialist who met Benito Mussolini in 1908. And they, they, well, for one thing, they became lovers. Um, She at the time, like Mussolini, was was a a socialist. Um, And her significant contribution was to become one of the earliest formulators of propaganda, ideas about myths, about... Mussolini as a leader, and in nineteen twenty-five, wrote a, a life of Benito Mussolini, which was interestingly published in London first, and the the following year uh, in Italy, because it had to be edited to uh, remove some of the potential signposts about the relationship, so Mussolini's wife Rachele wouldn't wouldn't find find out, or it wouldn't certainly be so explicit. Um, in Italy. but she actually did a lot to craft the original um, cult of the Duchy that became an important part of, of Mussolini's uh, leadership. Interestingly, Sarfati was Jewish and in some ways sadly, given that she worked for him and I think she contributed positively to his political rise left Italy in, in 1938 and uh, went to went to Argentina, although she did return um, to Italy after the war in 1947.
0: On page 128, you write as follows. The nature of the scale, content, and basis of Mussolini's authority, the possibility that his right to lead and how he led was something that even in a dictatorship, Italians voluntarily accepted and consented to requires detailed examination as a potentially very significant aspect of his leadership. There were no independent opinion surveys of the public during the Ventennio to supply answers. However, Mussolini's regime undertook extensive surveillance of the public and reviews of the reports available provide considerable insight into public opinion the surveillance was not just concerned with those actively opposing the regime. Especially in later years, Mussolini and the authorities were anxious to understand what Italians were thinking and to identify potential sources of discontent with the Duce, the regime, and its policies. Of course, the reports were refracted in the perceptions of the regime's agents and performers, but those who have reviewed them see them as a valid representation of the views that people held about Mussolini and the regime, letters and diaries written by Italians during Mussolini's rule, contemporaneous observations by a variety of writers, and interviews conducted with individuals in the years after fascism add further shade and depth to the content of official reports. Can you say more about this?
1: I think one one of the first things, and and particularly latterly, there was an obsession with public opinion, what people thought about the regime. And I think that points to a certain insecurity. Linio was a concern that things could go wrong. And indeed, just stepping down another route quickly on this, Mussolini had suffered political setbacks. Um He was expelled from the Socialist Party uh, in 1914 because of his support for Italian intervention in the First World War. He had had to resign from the executive of the fascist movement in 1920 because he was regarded as too conventional a politician, too close to socialism, too much of an ordinary, regular politician rather than a sort of activist fascist. And in 1924, following the kidnap and, and murder of the socialist deputy, Giacomo Matteotti, for a while he didn't have support and... Throughout that period from, let's say, about 1919 to 1925, there'd always been people who thought he wasn't really, or in fascist circles, there was the thought that he wasn't really the leader they they wanted. Um, So he always felt this insecurity. And I think, therefore, he was always checking, have I got backing, have I got support? And part of that was public support. And what the surveillance revealed was, among a section, we don't know how big that section was, that people came to see in him leadership strengths. um, People almost, Italians almost had a faith in him that he was the leader who could fix any, any problem. How widespread, as I say, that is, we don't know. We don't have the surveys to march, match it. But it wasn't universal. wasn't universal in two senses. There was also people who hated Mussolini, particularly working class. The fascists had attacked working class organisations on the road to power, had attacked working class areas. So there were parts of Italy who were equally against them. The other thing which I think is important is that while people had faith, it was not necessarily always a sort of unconditional faith uh, in him. I think people recognised that things didn't always go as well as the propaganda suggested it was. But nonetheless, I would say a lot of people thought he was making Italy great, he was improving the country, um, and had certain political skills that others didn't have.
0: On page 210, there's another quote I'd be curious to ask you about. Yeah. You write as follows, Mussolini's conception of social intervention was not confined to welfare provision. Intervention into the social sphere sought to bring about, from a fascist perspective, desirable social changes that would otherwise not have happened, draw Italians closer to the regime and the state, and encourage changes in people's outlooks, which would help to facilitate the mobilization of the population behind fascist projects. In this sense, Mussolini was not in favor of a small state, but saw... A significant and often invasive role for the state in the personal employment and leisure activities of Italians. Some of the interventions, such as offering travel subsidies for seaside outings or providing sports facilities can be seen as relatively benign, but all interventions had motivations beyond simply their own inherent quality. Thus assistance for the unemployed to find work also entailed other considerations, such as controlling the risk of worker unrest and having available cheap labor for for prestige projects. Increasing the size of families was linked to achieving increases to the available number who could be deployed in the military. Together, these different social interventions saw a major extension of the fascist state into the lives of Italians. The state was not acting simply from a position of munificence, to establish dependence and control by influencing and limiting the choices open to the Italian people. The aim was to change the way people behaved socially in line with fascist aspirations, although often intentions became confused. Can you expand on this observation?
1: Yes. Mussolini was engaged in what is often called an anthropological revolution. He wanted to reform Italians, great new Italian men and new Italian women. And that essentially was focused upon Italy becoming more powerful militarily. He wanted Italians to become more warlike, more aggressive. Um, And his hope was that through various interventions, people would be drawn into the regime and would therefore be open to being mobilised behind his fascist projects. So there were a number of, I'll take one example was his view, probably a distorted view, was that military prowess for a country was based on having a large population who would be able to join the military and fight for the country. Um, in that sense, it was a slightly outdated vision, but certainly one that he held strongly. So there were major initiatives to increase the birth rate through incentives, control and in employment, public employment was only open to married people. There was a tax on bachelor there were medals for having large families. It never, it never worked. The the birth rate under the fascists under the fascists continued to to have its downward decline. Um, and I think the interesting side to this was that if you read some of what he was saying about Italians, he had terrible disdain for Italians. He called them a race of sheep. He called them lazy. He said they had to be beaten into action. Um, he didn't see them as requiring much of the way of material benefits that they could survive on on little. So he had this rather odd perspective. And the result was that he kind of never found a way to properly engage with them. Um to, and that may say sound odd alongside the fact that people had faith in them, but the regime wasn't able to draw people into supporting. And that was, again, what I think one of the important lessons that comes out of the book, that although I keep repeating this point, people had faith in them, there was a definite limit to the extent that people were going to follow them, particularly... As regards war, as regards alliance with with uh, Nazi Germany, and that was for him a great source of, of frustration. Um, and in his later years, he he complained a lot about the failure of Italians to join his project, um, and he blamed the Italians. His line was, it wasn't fascism that had failed the Italians, it was Italians who'd failed, failed fascism.
0: In what ways does your study of Benito Mussolini differ from previous research on him?
1: The main... To, to answer to that question, maybe go back. I, as I said earlier, felt that while the, there was a lot of richness in existing studies, of Mussolini, there was something that didn't kind of smooth out some of the contradictory sides to him, which of course was part of his persona. He 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 created different sides to him, which helped him sustain himself in, in power. And therefore what what I did in writing the book, I thought, right, I'm not going in with a particular line. Uh writing the book was almost an exploration. And what I tried to do was reconcile some of the seeming conflicts and contradictions that he displayed. So take 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 an example. He rested his leadership to a very large extent on being an omnicompetent leader. And to perform that, and to be that omnicompetent leader, he didn't ever really particularly wish to be seen to be taking advice. The consequence of which was, as a leader, he became detached. I won't say detached from reality, but certainly detached from a lot of things that were going on Um, a lot of solutions that might have been available to him. Um, And that meant he was was much less effective. Another kind of contradiction was that he wanted to pursue, as we've been talking about, this fascist revolution. But at the same time, he was concerned not to destabilise the existing structures of power in Italy. And therefore, a lot of what he tried to do was to pursue change, but often in a in a in almost in a kind of light touch way or a symbolic way, giving the appearance of change, but not necessarily following through on it. And therefore, as it see what, what you end up with is someone who has, in one sense, very strong dictatorial power within government but is unable then to realise his his ambitions for fascism and for fascist Italy.
0: What new perspectives are presented in your book regarding Achille Starace?
1: I think Achille Starace was secretary of the fascist party for much of the 1930s. And I think what what Staracci in some senses is regarded as a bit of a, a lightweight, a buffoon, not a very serious politician, but in some ways he was an ideal lightning rod for Mussolini because when things did not go particularly well, The blame was attached to the party. The blame was attached to Starachi, not to to Mussolini. And therefore, what Mussolini was doing was he was, A, not having people around him who were necessarily too powerful, and Starachi was certainly very obedient to Mussolini, but was never going to be a threat to him. But at the same time, a lot of what Staracci did and pursued, so for example, he changed Italian language in the way of getting rid of anglicized words. So football became cultural, um, etc., etc. He also suggested that Italians and particularly fascist party members shouldn't drink coffee. So he created a rather sort of artificial form of fascism, what I call a pseudo fascism. And to some degree, that actually, Mussolini, because it wasn't ever really addressing the issue, it wasn't necessarily going to lead to too much instability. A lot of people didn't like the idea of not being uh, asked to drink coffee or give up on handshakes and always give the the fascist salute and so on and so forth. But it you know, as I say, it created a pseudo-fascism which maybe was more comfortable for Mussolini. He didn't have to push the, push the, the issue too far and therefore experience instability, which might threaten his position.
0: There's another quote I'd be curious to ask you about. Mm-hmm. On page 183, you write as follows. Mussolini's rhetoric around the economy of a revolutionary third way proved noticeably hollow. In many respects, he took a conservative approach to the economy, dampening it down through keeping the size of the state constrained as his economic supporters wished. On top of this were many interventions, such as the quota novanta and the battle for the grain, which were underpinned by overt political aims that permeated his economic aims. Where these led to disruptions, compensating interventions and concessions were put in place for those economic interests to whom he felt it necessary to respond. Those economic interests also benefited from the corporatist structures that held down wages. The wider corporatist structures, which were given few concrete responsibilities, had a minimal impact on the economy beyond wages, but did offer an opportunity to present a more radical picture of the fascist economy than its conservative reality. Can you expand on this observation?
1: Yeah, Mussolini, when he came to power, was influenced by current economic thinking to a significant extent. And that was a, a sort of fairly basic liberal economic view that the state shouldn't have a major role and matters should be left to the market. However, of course, Mussolini had ambitions um, and did want to intervene in, in the market. And when he did so, he often in respect of, of industry and, to some extent, agriculture as well, offered compensating um, payments, tax relief, whatever it happened to be, to keep, keep that connection with powerful economic interests. Sound. The result was that actually a common image of Mussolini is that he was a major economic interventionist. It's not actually true. I'll come back to some of the the exceptions to that. So the proportion of public expenditure from when he came on to power stayed at or is sometimes below until the mid-1930s when it began to go up. But it began to go up, A, because of the... Ethiopian War, which took up about 20% of public expenditure uh, over the period 1935 to 1940. And in one sense, the state didn't expand. The major intervention that Mussolini took early on was, in effect, getting rid of free trade unions, which was largely achieved by 1926. So in effect, you had trade unions that were were under government control and that allowed a number of wage cuts subsequently to be uh, undertaken. And that kind of deflated the economy. Again, repeat, they were often compensating for for industry, compensating... uh, benefits coming in their direction. But that was an important part of of his policy. He also, at the same time, had set the value of the lira in international terms at a high level, much higher than anybody else thought it would be. He did it for political reasons, to show the strength of Italy. It had a strong currency. But the consequence was that it actually deflated the economy. It uh, reduced demand because people were having to pay more for, for imported, imported goods. And that deflation had quite an impact after actually what quite a good period in the first few years when the economy grew reasonably well under a under sort of liberal. That deflation of the economy, um, I would say, held, held, held it back. And even after the Wall Street cash in 1929, the Italian government was slow to move in to offer compensating relief to help the economy. Um, again, there was this view, all, all that's required is a high exchange rate and wage control, reducing wages. However, the banks in Italy began in Nineteen thirty really began to suffer because they were what called joint banks. We invested in companies. The companies weren't earning the income, therefore the loans were at risk. And in nineteen thirty-one, major intervention with the creation of the Instituto per la Ricostruzione Industriale was what we call IRI was created. And it took over shares in large swathes of the Italian economy to keep it afloat. But even then, all it was doing was, in effect, funding industry, giving it financial security. It wasn't taking over the running of the businesses, which more or less carried on as usual. So again, Mussolini was protecting the autonomy of private business while putting... Uh, a lot of uh, funds in in their in their direction, and a couple of things to say about that. One, he allowed technicians, financial experts, if you like, industrial experts, to run it. He he stepped back from the running of that, and often in history it's seen as one of the regime's successes. And in fact, the Institute was only closed down in Italy in 2002. So there was that side to it. It was effective, but it wasn't effective because of Mussolini. The other thing was that as the economy improved in the later 30s, Erie gave up its shareholding in many companies that kind of withdrew, but it continued to hold pretty substantial holdings in a lot of industries. These industries were iron ore, steel manufacture, armaments. And what Mussolini hoped was by having state ownership, that would form a basis for him to direct the economy, direct industry towards military ends. So military focused industries stayed part of that public um public funding, public sort of semi-public ownership right up until, up until the war. But I should add, just because he had no plan, economic plan for mobilization worth its name, um, that ownership really never offered any effective control. Industry decided itself in many ways what it, what it was going to do.
0: On page 184, you write as follows. Mussolini's instincts, like those of fascism's economic supporters, were for a small economic state, but the impact of the World Depression eventually forced his hand to extend intervention considerably to prevent collapse of the banking sector. His more interventionist state continued as before to operate through arrangements where private firms and landowners were able to enjoy extensive self-regulation and opportunities for private gain. IRI may have afforded the state with a significant share in the ownership of private firms, but like other interventionist arrangements such as supporting cartels, the state's influence was limited to bailing out and supporting industry and leaving it. Often successfully to develop and modernize for its own purposes. Once the worst of the crisis was over, however, he did not contract the state but reorientated it to pursue military expansion. The resultant increasing in spending was not unwelcome in industrial circles where it boosted demand, at least in some sectors. However, while industry did modernize and develop, a hands-off approach would adversely affect the buildup of military capacity. Throughout the regime, Mussolini dampened down private consumption in the economy through control of wages and specific policy choices. This fitted with his notions of fascist sacrifice. It was not, however, part of an effective strategy to free up resources for investment to develop the economy in the longer term. Low demand discouraged investment for domestic markets, while Other policies often mitigated against investment. This was most obvious in agriculture where policy failed to realize reforms that would boost capital accumulation and increase productivity. The reliance on cheap labor to undertake public works similarly did little to promote capital investment in public works. Can you say more about this?
1: Yes. Mussolini had economic aims what he never developed i think was a vision a plan call it what you will on how to develop the italian economy what was required for it to move forward and what therefore was happening during the regime was that His model was based on low wages, not encouraging domestic demand. So actually, that didn't help industrial development. A range of public works, which, as the quote you've just read, states, was about cheap labour rather than innovation. And a lot of public works ended up going into public buildings, which one can still see around Italy which demonstrated something positive about the regime, had a political age, new buildings, large grand buildings like the Central Station in Milan, but were not focused upon actually investing in the productive and particularly the potentially productive parts of of the Italian economy. And two consequences. Productivity did not increase as much as it did in other countries. There was low productivity growth under under fascism. The second thing was that the potential of the economy, given its difficulties with productivity, were much less. And by the time Italy entered the Second World War in June 1940, It was going as fast as it could. Most countries, when they enter war, their economy expands. The Italian economy didn't expand. It didn't have the potential to grow. And that was one, if only one, of of the weaknesses of Italy's war effort uh, from 1940 to 1943. Therefore some historians look back on the fascist era as a kind of economic lost opportunity uh, when there were, despite the difficult international economic conditions, there were opportunities. So, industry did develop, and to some extent, despite his economic policies, parts of Italian industry did quite well in the 1930s. But I suppose the argument always is they could have done done better. Agriculture was, and a bit of a tradition in Italy, was kind of left a bit to its own devices. There wasn't that much investment, particularly in infrastructure in the south of the country that would have encouraged more productive, uh, productive agricultural activities.
0: In what ways, if any... Was Benito Mussolini a quote-unquote conservative in the contemporary sense, meaning, and understanding of the term? What were the similarities and differences between quote-unquote conservatism and fascism?
1: From, From the outset, there were two sides to Mussolini. One was a picture, a presentation of radical change at the same time as wishing to keep the existing social order pretty much intact. In fact, probably benefited the existing social order. So in one sense, Mussolini was a conservative. I've said that in Some respects, he operated what you might just call a conservative clampdown, which was keeping wages low, keeping worker unrest out out of the way. But at the same time as he was doing that, and you could say, well, yes, that's him as a sort of conservative clampdown, he was pursuing radical, maybe quote-unquote radical, fascist ambitions. And in that sense, he was almost pursuing two separate strategies, the conservative strategy and the radical strategy. And in a way, much of his role was trying to balance the two, to to try and bring the two together, not always with with a lot of, of success. So in that sense, he was, I think, quite different from Hitler, who was much more forceful in pursuing his vision of what the Third Reich should look like, should be, should embody. Um, But overall, he maintained quite a, I think, a rigid conservative society. He created an order, a social order, or sustained maybe a better way of putting it, a social order, which aligned him with Conservatives, not just conservatives under fascism, but actually was largely what most of the conservative politicians had pursued prior to the fascists coming power in 1922. And so there is an element of continuity. However, he did it in a much more um, authoritarian way than had happened prior to nineteen
0: twenty-two. What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding Galeazzo Ciano?
1: Yes, Ciano. You know, um, I think Ciano is an interesting um, character, largely because it was assumed that he would be Mussolini's successor. Um, at some point, although Mussolini was wanted aid to continue to appear youthful and therefore was unhappy about discussions about who was going to succeed him. Shano had a meteoric rise partly because he married Mussolini's daughter. So he was Mussolini's son-in-law. And having gone from a diplomatic job, was put in charge of propaganda, and he he subsequently became foreign minister at that influential period running up to the the Second World War. Shano, in some ways, I won't say was besotted by Mussolini, but held him in very high regard. But what I think emerges is that to some degree... Even having that family relationship, even holding him in high regard, his influence, Shiano's influence, was not very significant, particularly over the big decisions. And I think what's what's revealed in the book is how Shiano, despite in some senses having a lot going for him, was much like any other leader under Mussolini, mainly very much at a lower level, second, not having necessarily a great deal of of influence, and of course, the denouement to that was that when the fascist Grand Council voted to curtail Mussolini, I say they voted to to get rid of him, but in July nineteen forty three, when they voted, Ciano voted was one of the. People who voted for it, and as a result, in the after the fall of Mussolini's government and the establishment of the social republic under Mussolini, which was really just a puppet regime of 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 the Germans, Shano was captured and and shot. Um, which showed a, to me showed a quite a ruthless side to to Mussolini. Um, and certainly put a strain on his relations with with his daughter.
0: Can you comment on Benito Mussolini's managerial style? How did he approach decision making within his cabinet and in relation to the Italian government's bureaucracy?
1: Mussolini in the years from nineteen twenty-two to nineteen twenty-five, maybe twenty-six, consolidated a personal dictatorship at the end of 1925 law was changed which in summary made the Prime Minister no longer accountable to Parliament accountable still to the monarch um, but certainly not accountable to Parliament and he'd done a lot to increase central powers particularly through police, he had a major involvement with the policing of the country which helped to consolidate his personal position of power. The other side to that which is, is important is that most fascist leaders were willing to go along with that. They saw him as this competent, this brilliant leader, um, particularly in the wake of the Matiota crisis, the murder of Giacomo Matiota, to kind of save fascism, they had to encourage, develop, promote the power of Mussolini as a leader, which they did. The consequence of that was that all fascist leaders, by giving recognition to the cult, of Mussolini by recognising or acknowledging his superior leadership abilities, put themselves at a lower level. They were continually deferring to his apparent genius as as a leader. But Mussolini never, maybe strangely, never exploited that, never said to himself, "I, I have a lot of loyal people who are willing to support me. His managerial style is Prime Minister, was one of extreme control. He controlled everything. He also was pretty suspicious of his colleagues and kept moving them around posts, and particularly if they seemed to be rising too much politically, as happened to Italo Balbo, um, who had recognition for his transatlantic flights. He was dismissed from the Air Ministry and made governor-general of Libya kind of put out of, put out of the way. So Mussolini had this obsessive control, um, which became self-defeating because he was actually trying to manage too much. And he, he, in a sense, overburned himself by this desire from, for, for control. At the same time, as I was saying earlier on in our, our interview, he had a strange view um, of how government would work. He seemed to believe in the perfection of any bureaucracy that if he took a decision, somehow it would work its way down the system and pop out at the end just as, it, as he intended it. Um, he seemed to almost have a military view that there was some military discipline in government bureaucracies that would would somehow achieve the, the desired results. And he also, I mean, again, strangely, became involved in, in almost irrelevant details. Even when he was fighting the, the war and planning in charge of Italy's military campaign in the Second World War, he was getting involved in promotions of relatively junior officers, the supply of cheese to the army, all sorts of things that um, were <laughs> of no consequence to the overall military military strategy. And a lot of that rested, I think, on, on a sort of distrust. I think ultimately he was distrustful of, of people. But also, if you are playing the part of the super leader, the omnicompetent leader, then... He kind of thought that means you have to do everything, whereas Hitler and Stalin and others were able to build around them, have around them, essentially loyal followers who were willing to follow and, in the case of Hitler, flesh out and interpret interpret their wishes. Mussolini never really, really had that. He didn't, or certainly didn't cultivate it, despite the fact that around him he seemed to have many not completely but many loyal loyal figures willing to to support him
0: what new perspectives are presented in your study regarding italo balbo
1: i think to be fair um there've been a couple of good studies of italo balbo uh, so what what I'd say about about him was again a bit like shano he had a great belief in Mussolini great faith which because of this hands-off approach that Mussolini adopted I mean he he dealt with his colleagues in a very formalized way in fact Balbo um, is quoted as saying that in later years Mussolini would have one-to-one meetings and speak as if he was addressing a crowd Um, and I think Balbo really began to resent the way Mussolini treated him, and and that actually became quite a, a vociferous critic, if in private, of of Mussolini. He wanted a different sort of relationship. He wanted a more equal, personable relationship, and, and Mussolini was was not in for it. Um, so I get, as I say, I think similar to Shano, and you could. Add to that list, Giuseppe, Botte, etc. All these leaders started out with a faith, but by the late 30s, in some cases earlier, we're beginning to see our relationship isn't isn't good. But of course, their position within the regime and the benefits it brought, um, such as salary, government positions, um access to favours etc etc we're not necessarily going to walk away from it
0: how did Mussolini become prime minister of Italy in 1922 can you comment on the march on Rome and Mussolini's seizure of power as it is as these events are recontextualized in your study
1: the rise of 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 Mussolini in a sense it's it's worth going back to what happened before the First World War, the 1900s, the so-called Geolitian era, were quite successful economically. And Giolitti wished to bring about reform, bring the working class into the state, because the state had suffered a lack of legitimacy since unification. However, in that task, partly because of his own limited view of what reform should entail. Geolitti was unable to achieve achieve that. So going into the First World War, you were beginning to see a sort of political breakdown. The Socialists had, had risen, they were a powerful force, but by that time they were unwilling to enter into accommodations with liberal leaders. Indeed They were becoming more revolutionary or maximalists, as as they're called. In fact, interestingly, Mussolini was one of these maximalist leaders within the party. At the same time, that period, 1900 onwards, maybe a bit earlier, I'd seen the rise of a radical Italian nationalism that was, again, drawing on anti-Enlightenment thinking, saw this nation as organic, Became quite imperialist in outlook. So, the, what was happening in that period was there was a, a dividing line between radical nationalists, but also conservatives, a sort of nationalist, and socialism. And there wasn't much in the centre, which Giolitti tried to cultivate, but ultimately couldn't break. That carried on through the war. The nationalists supported the war. The socialists were against the war. There were quite a lot of strikes during the war. Um, The defeat at Caporetto became erroneously attributed to shirkers and and socialists undermining the uh, Italian army. So Italy came out of the war politically pretty divided between the left and the right with and both holding two extreme positions, and the post-war period saw that fought out, um, and become became quite violent from nineteen nineteen to two, to nineteen twenty. There were a couple of what are called the red, two red years, the Biennale Rosso, um, factory occupations. But at the same time, as there was socialist militancy, people were worried there was going to be a Bolshevik revolution, etc. etc. Um, upgrew fascist squads. So from 1919, groups in local areas, squads of armed young men, not many who'd fought in the war, but who were directed by officers who'd been in the war, started attacking the socialists. In fact, these attacks. Everybody they attacked the Catholics, they attacked the Liberals as well. But their target was the socialists. Partly sponsored in some cases by, particularly in landowning areas, by employers who essentially employed the, the squads as strike breakers. And squad violence grew became more effective, it was better organised than the socialists, and the socialists were put on the back foot, sorry, the back feet. Um, and by 1921, fascism began to be less just a force, a movement to eradicate political opponents. It became a force to seize power. And gradually, over 1921-22, Mussolini, who was then in charge of what became the fascist party, and colleagues began to plan for a seizure of power. And there was no secret about that. There was no particular view that it caught people by surprise. It was well organized, it had been organized over several months. And in, towards the end of October, the fascists. October 1922, the fascists began to take control of local states. They took over local governments. Um, and then, in a planned march that had been put together with, with, with some actually significant planning, but at the same time, the weak Italian government had to respond to this. And the king tried to form a new government under Antonio Salandra, who asked Mussolini to join his government in, was in October 1922. Mussolini refused, so Salandra suggested the king that he appoint Mussolini as prime minister, which he did on the 29th of October. Mussolini was still in Milan. Some cynics say because of it didn't work out uh, it was close enough to Switzerland to make an escape. And on the following day, the march in Rome happened. But by then, power had passed to Mussolini anyhow. The significant factors, I think, to bear in that was, firstly, violence and the existence of the squads were central to Mussolini coming to power. Without the squads, he wouldn't have become prime minister anytime soon. The second thing is that much of what I'll call the Italian establishment, in one form or another, were willing to go along with it, and then were willing to go along with other changes. Um, the Parliament, uh, which only had thirty-five fascist deputies, including Mussolini, then voted through a series of reforms that consolidated the power of the, of the prime minister and. As I've said already, over the following three, three years, the dictatorship was was established. But there was a problem for Mussolini, which was the squads were pretty unruly. They weren't necessarily entirely welcome, although they might have done a good job for them, but weren't entirely welcome um, in middle-class conservative circles and therefore Mussolini had to control them, they also, some of their local leaders, um, were potential rivals to Mussolini at that point. So the controlling the party became a, a major aim of, of Mussolini. And again, from that point onwards, the party was kind of demoted and the state was kind of promoted and Mussolini essentially used the state, including the police, a range of state institutions, to try and keep the party, party in check. And again, that's just going back to one of your earlier points. That was the difference. There was no party driving any social revolution, as there was in, in Nazi Germany. The party was kept under relatively tight control, was largely a bureaucratic and, in some ways, moribund uh, institution, which many people joined. Um, but it was it was a kind of highly regulated organisation which didn't encourage much in the way of political activism. People would parade about, and wear uniforms, but beyond that, they wouldn't necessarily do very much.
0: What new gleanings are presented in this book? regarding Mussolini's attitudes and policies towards Jews.
1: Yes, the... Mussolini had a disposition which was that politics had, to some degree, have to have others, people to attack, possibly hate. And in the early part of... His role, as he came to power march of Rome, the socialists and, and to some degree the communists played that role very nicely. He also, very early on, with the newly acquired territories um, in Alta Adige, Trentino, sought to assimilate German and Slav populations that were kind of inherited by Italy uh, as part of the Versailles. Uh, agreement tried to assimilate them uh, and did it in a very repressive way and actually again not particularly effective um, way but the 1938 race law marked a great or er, a great step up in terms of dealing with others and there's no doubt I don't think anybody would dispute that the race laws in Italy, were much the same as the laws, the Nuremberg laws in Nazi Germany. But in some ways, they came out of, I won't say nowhere, but they they were not part of Mussolini's thinking until maybe 37, 38. Indeed, it's difficult to pinpoint. There certainly was anti-Semitism in Italy, a lot of it, Associated, one's going to say, with the Catholic Church. Mussolini himself was anti Semitic, but actually it was not part of his political project. And indeed, in the 30s, he made positive remarks about the Jews and the art in Italian society. He, I think, famously in 1937, said he had no belief in Hitler's or Germany's, Nazi Germany's racist policies. And yet, within whatever it was, 12, 18 months of that, he'd implemented, and a lot of it was down to him, implemented these very repressive, discriminatory laws and the question is, well, why did he do it? And it, it's 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 difficult. the The common answer is, well, he he wanted to strengthen the alliance with Nazi Germany, so he he kind of copied that, um, a sort of mimicking to win credibility. I think that has a certain credibility, um, but I think there were other factors. I think racism with the Ethiopian War had become a bit more part of fascism. I think, interestingly, some Jews, not all Jews, had been prominent critics of fascism and were particularly prominent critics of the Ethiopian War. In addition, I think he had seen in Nazi Germany how the very strong hatred. Nazism embodied, of the Jews, became a basis for mobilising the population. And I think Mussolini again thought this this could be mimicked. He was also, to some degree, becoming more caught up in ideas of the West and the threat to the West, writings of Spengler, and the need to protect the West, and began to see Jews, and particularly Jews via Zionism, as not being part of of the country. So it it lacks a certain coherence. It's difficult to sort of say, oh, yes, it all fell into place that way. The interesting thing is that if you are going to use that kind of hate as a, a driving force politically, the Jews in Italy didn't, in one sense, make any sense there weren't very few Jews. There were about 47,000 Jews living in Italy, which was one-tenth of one percent of the population. There was no strong anti-Semitic movement in Italy. To some degree, as I think I've already said, Jews were reasonably well assimilated and integrated uh, in into Italy. So, it's, as I say, there's, there's no kind of coherence to what... To my mind, it it was almost just an almost ill-considered, opportunistic reaction to try and make things happen, Um, which unfortunately was very damaging to Italian Jews, who, I've got to say, were very, very surprised, shocked by what happened when the race laws came out. The Jews were not expected. It wasn't the kind of early years of, of Nazi rule where Jews were beginning to leave the country and, and worry for the future. A lot of Jews, when the law were published, were, were greatly shocked. So it's one of these things that's difficult to explain historically, um, but it doesn't put Mussolini in any particularly uh, good, good light. Um,
0: who did you write this book for? Who do you consider your ideal reader, your intended addressees, and your imagined audience?
1: I think I probably, if I can see this, maybe had a number of audiences. One of the reasons for writing the book, and therefore my intended audience, or one of my intended audiences, was that there remains a lot of mythology, surrounding Mussolini. Um, a lot of it actually is just people repeating, and indeed historians, if not so recently in the past, repeating fascist propaganda and, and assuming that the propaganda was the truth of what was going on. Um, so I, for popularly in in people's imagination, there's I think a lack of clarity, maybe a bit of misunderstanding about Mussolini and what he represented, and indeed, to be honest, what, what the fascist regime was. So what I was trying to do was say, this is what it was really like. This was how it was, and doesn't necessarily accord with what is being said Um or has been reported, including, one's going to say, in some historical uh, accounts by scholars. So there was a kind of, can we put together some some sort of, of, of record? So anybody, so if that's an intended audience, maybe revisiting Mussolini, if you like, rethinking through what he represented. I think I'm also just interested to flag up to readers again how fragile, in a sense, democracies can be if somebody or some people are intent in taking power uh, for their own purposes. And also just scholars of Italian history, Italian fascism, to add a new perspective. But if you really want an ideal reader, it's somebody who knows a bit about Mussolini and wants to know a bit more, and hopefully will we'll learn a bit more from that.
0: One individual discussed in your book is Bartolomeo Pagano. Can you yeah. tell us about him?
1: He was an Italian film star, uh, a silent film star uh, in the early part of the century, Um, He went under the stage name of Maschiste. And in very simple terms, Mussolini, in developing his persona, his public persona, took on many of the mannerisms that Maschiste had. He wasn't the only one, he copied Douglas Fairbanks Jr. So Mussolini's cult was based on a created persona, which drew on many sources, including film stars like Machisti.
0: What new perspectives are presented in this book regarding Arnaldo Mussolini?
1: Actually, to be honest, not a lot, because Arnaldo Mussolini, Mussolini's brother, um, was pivotal to Mussolini. He was the one person he trusted, he was an advisor. Um, whom Mussolini paid attention to. Um, but actually in the histories of fascism, he his his part is, is not widely um not widely reported. It's not been a, a certainly in my understanding a, a figure of much invest, investigation, largely because I think he he had a sort of semi-private role, he wasn't particularly part of, of, of the regime. Um, although he did some um, important work um, for, for the regime.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this
1: book? Two things. Um, my attention, I'm still, for me there are loose ends in the book. So I think two of the loose ends that are particularly interesting to me. One is, what was the real relationship in terms of influence between Mussolini and the wider fascist movement, fascist state? A lot of historians criticise the concentration of Mussolini, which I don't think is true now anyhow, as opposed to fascism. So there's a There's a balancing out to be done there, and I'm I'm doing a bit of of work on that. The other piece of work that I'm doing, which is very separate um, and different, is I'm looking at democracy in Scotland. So I'm now dealing with Italian history and contemporary Scottish politics.
0: Uh,
1: I'm managing just about to keep, keep the two in balance.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'd like to thank you for your generosity in participating in today's dialogue with me. I grew immensely from learning from you and listening to you and would like to wholeheartedly convey my appreciation for your wisdom and your thoughtfulness.
1: Well, equally, I, I just thank you for, for your questions. I think you've, you've drawn out some or a range of important um, issues regarding Mussolini. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it um times you've tested my memory of what i wrote but uh you know it's it's just been a good good discussion i've enjoyed it um and hopefully you've got what you want um, thank you And those who hear the the podcast will find it interesting and, and benefit from it thank it you my pleasure
0: thank you wholeheartedly as we end today i'm your host on the new books history podcast Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Peter Williamson. He is an independent researcher. We have been discussing his newly published book, Duce, The Contradictions of Power, The Political Leadership of Benito Mussolini, published in London by Hearst and Company 2023. The book is available in North America, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you very much.